Chapter twenty five of Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic by Benedetto Croce. Translated by Douglas Ainsley, eighteen sixty five to nineteen forty eight. Historical Summary, Part seven. The ground lost to the German school of metaphysicians was occupied during the second half of the nineteenth century by the evolutionary and positivist metaphysicians, of whom Herbert Spencer is the most notable representative. The peculiarity of this school lies in repeating at second or third hand certain idealist views, deprived of the element of pure philosophy, given to them by a Schelling or a Hegel, and in substituting a quantity of minute facts and anecdotes with a view to providing the positivist varnish. These theories are dear to vulgar minds because they correspond to inveterate religious beliefs, and the luster of the varnish explains the good fortune of Spencerian positivism in our time. Another notable trait of this school is its barbaric contempt for history, especially for the history of philosophy, and its consequent lack of all link with the series composed of the secular efforts of so many thinkers. Without this link there can be no fruitful labor, and no possibility of progress. Spencer is colossal in his ignorance of all that has been written or thought on the subject of aesthetic, to limit ourselves to this branch alone. He actually begins his work in the philosophy of style with these words. No one, I believe, has ever produced a complete theory of the art of writing. This in 1852. He begins his chapter on aesthetic feelings in The Principle of Psychology by admitting that he has heard of the observation made by a German author, whose name he forgets, Schiller on the connection between art and play. Had Spencer's remarks on aesthetic been written in the 18th century, they might have occupied a humble place among the first rude attempts at aesthetic speculation. But appearing in the 19th century, they are without value, as the little of value they contain had been long said by others. In his Principles of Psychology, Spencer looks upon aesthetic feelings as arising from the discharge of this exuberant energy of the organism. This he divides into degrees, and believes that we attain complete enjoyment when these degrees are all working satisfactorily, each on its own plane, and when what is painful in excessive activity has been avoided. His degrees are sensation, sensation accompanied by representative elements, perception accompanied by more complex elements of representation than emotion, and that state of consciousness which surpasses sensations and perceptions. But Spencer has no suspicion of what art really is. His views oscillate between sensualism and moralism, and he sees little in the whole art of antiquity, of the Middle Ages, or of modern times, which can be looked upon as otherwise than imperfect. The physiology of aesthetics has also had its votaries in Great Britain, among whom may be mentioned J. Sully, A. Bain, and Allen. These at any rate show some knowledge of the concrete fact of art. Allen harks back to the old distinction between necessary and vital activities and superfluous activities, and gives a physiological definition which may be read in his Physiological Aesthetics. More recent writers also look upon the physiological fact as the cause of the pleasure of art, but for them it does not alone depend upon the visual organ and the muscular phenomena associated with it, but also on the participation of some of the most important bodily functions, such as respiration, circulation, equilibrium, intimate muscular accommodation. They believe that art owes its origin to the pleasure that some prehistoric man must have experienced in breathing regularly, without having to readapt his organs, when he traced for the first time on a bone or on clay regular lines separated by regular intervals. 
a similar order of the physico-aesthetic researches has been made in germany under the auspices of helmholtz brucke and stumpf but these writers have succeeded better than the above mentioned by restricting themselves to the fields of optic and acoustic and have supplied information as to the physical processes of artistic technique and as to the pleasure of visual and auditive impressions without attempting to melt aesthetic into physic or to deprive the former of its spiritual character they have even occasionally indicated the difference between the two kinds of research even the degenerate herbardians converting the metaphysical forms of their master into physiological phenomenon made soft eyes at the new sensualists and the aesthetico-physiologists the natural sciences have become in our day a sort of superstition allied to a certain perhaps unconscious hypocrisy not only have chemical physical and physiological laboratories become a sort of sibylline grots where resound the most extraordinary questions about everything that can interest the spirit of man but even those who really do prosecute their researches with the old inevitable method of internal observation have been unable to free themselves from the illusion that they are on the contrary employing the method of the natural sciences hippolyte taint's philosophy of art represents such an illusion he declares that when we have studied the diverse manifestations of art in all peoples and at all epochs we shall then possess a complete aesthetic such an aesthetic would be a sort of botany applied to the works of men this mode of study would provide moral science with a basis equally as sure as that which the natural sciences already possess taine then proceeds to define art without regard to the natural sciences by analyzing like a simple mortal what passes in the human soul when brought face to face with a work of art but what analysis and what definitions art he says is imitation but of a sort that tries to express an essential characteristic thus the principal characteristic of a lion is to be a great carnivore and we observe this characteristic in all its limbs holland has for essential characteristic that of being a land formed of alluvial soil now without staying to consider these two remarkable instances let us ask what is this essential characteristic of taine it is the same as the ideas types or concepts that the old aesthetic teaching assigned to art as its object taine himself removes all doubt as to this by saying that this characteristic is what philosophers call the essence of things and for that reason they declare that the purpose of art is to manifest things he declares that he will not employ the word essence which is technical but he accepts and employs the thought that the word expresses he believes that there are two routes by which man can attain to the superior life science and art by the first he apprehends fundamental laws and causes and expresses them in abstract terms by the second he expresses these same laws and causes in a manner comprehensible to all by appealing to the heart and feeling as well as to the reason of man art is both superior and popular it makes manifest what is highest and makes it manifest to all that taint here falls into the old pedagogic theory of aesthetic is evident works of art are arranged for him in a scale of values as for the aesthetic metaphysicians he begins by declaring the absurdity of all judgment of taste a chacun son goût but he ends by declaring that personal taste is without value that we must establish a common measure before proceeding to praise or blame his scale of values is double or triple we must first fix the degree of importance of the characteristic that is the greater or less generality of the idea and the degree of good in it that is to say its greater or lesser moral value these he says are two degrees of the same thing strength seen from different sides we must also establish the degree of convergence of the effects that is the fullness of expression the harmony between the idea and the form this half moral half metaphysical exposition is accompanied with the usual protestations that the matter in hand is to be studied methodically analytically as the naturalist would study it that he will try to reach a law not a hymn as if these protestations could abolish the true nature of his thought 
Taine actually went so far as to attempt dialectic solutions of works of art. In the primitive period of Italian art, we find the soul without the body, Giotto. At the Renaissance, with Verrocchio in his school, we find the body without the soul. With Raphael in the 16th century, we find expression and anatomy and harmony, body and soul. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. With G. T. Fechner, we find the like protestations and the like procedure. He will study aesthetic inductively from beneath. He seeks clarity, not loftiness. Proceeding thus inductively, he discovers a long series of laws or principles of aesthetic, such as unity in variety, association in contrast, change in persistence, the golden mean, etc. He exhibits this chaos with delight at showing himself so much of a physiologist and so inconclusive. Then he proceeds to describe his experiments in aesthetics. These consists of attempts to decide, for instance, by methods of choice, which of certain rectangles of cardboard is the most agreeable, and which the most disagreeable, to a large number of people arbitrarily chosen. Naturally, these results do not agree with others obtained on other occasions. But Fechner knows that errors correct themselves, and triumphantly publishes long lists of these valuable experiments. He also communicates to us the shapes and measurements of a large number of pictures in museums, as compared with their respective subjects. Such are the experiments of physiological estheticians. But Fechner, when he comes to define what beauty and art really are, is, like everyone else, obliged to fall back upon introspection. But his definition is trivial, and his comparison of his three degrees of beauty to a family is simply grotesque in its naivete. He terms this theory the eudaimonistic theory, and we are left wondering why, when he had this theory all cut and dried in his mind, he should all the same give himself the immense trouble of compiling his tables and of enumerating his laws and principles, which do not agree with his theory. Perhaps it was all a pastime to him, like playing at patience or collecting postage stamps. Yet another example of superstition in respect to the natural sciences is afforded by Ernest Gross. Gross abounds in contempt for what he calls speculative aesthetic, yet he desires a science of art, Kunstwissenschaft, which shall formulate its laws from those historical facts which have hitherto been collected. But Gross wishes us to complete the collection of historical evidence with ethnographical and prehistoric materials, for we cannot obtain really general laws of art from the exclusive study of cultivated peoples, just as a theory of reproduction exclusively based upon the form it takes with mammifers must necessarily be imperfect. He is, however, aware that the results of experiences among savages and prehistoric races do not alone suffice to furnish us with an equipment for such investigations as that concerning the nature of art, and like any ordinary mortal, he feels obliged to interrogate, before starting, the spirit of man. He therefore proceeds to divine aesthetic on a priorist principles, which, he remarks, can be discarded when we shall have obtained the complete theory, in like manner with the scaffolding that has served for the erection of a house. Words, words, vain words. He proceeds to define aesthetic as the activity which in its development and result has the immediate value of feeling, and is therefore an end in itself. Art is the opposite of practice. The activity of games stands intermediate between the two, having also its end in its own activity. The aesthetic of Taine and Gross have been called sociological. Seeing that any true definition of sociology as a science is impossible, for it is composed of psychological elements which are forever varying, we do not delay to criticize the futile attempts at definition, but pass at once to the objective results attained by the sociologists. This superstition, like the naturalistic, takes various forms in practical life. We have, for existence, Proudhon, 1875, who would hark back to Platonic aesthetic, class the aesthetic activity among the merely sensual, and command the arts to further the cause of virtue, on pain of judicial proceedings in case of contumacy. But M. Gayou, 
is the most important of sociological estheticians. His works, published in Paris toward the end of the last century, and his posthumous work, entitled Les Problèmes de Esthétique Contemporaine, substitute for the theory of play, that of life, and the posthumous work above mentioned makes it evident that by life he means social life. Art is the development of social sympathy, but the whole of art does not enter into sociology. Art has two objects, the production of agreeable sensations, colors, sounds, etc., and of phenomena of psychological introduction, which include ideas and feelings of a more complex nature than the foregoing, such as sympathy for the personages represented, interest, piety, indignation, etc. Thus art becomes the expression of life. Hence arise two tendencies, one for harmony, consonance, for all that delights the ear and eye, the other transforming life under the dominion of art. True genius is destined to balance these two tendencies, but the decadent and the unbalanced deprive art of its sympathetic end, setting aesthetic sympathy against human sympathy. If we translate this language into that with which we are by this time quite familiar, we shall see that Gaillau admits an art that is merely hedonistic, and places above it another art, also hedonistic, but serving the ends of morality. M. Nordeau wages war against the decadent and unbalanced in much the same manner as Gaillot. He assigns to art the function of re-establishing the integrity of life, so much broken up and specialized in our industrial civilization. He remarks that there is such a thing as art for art's sake, the simple expression of the internal states of the individual, but it is the art of the cave-dweller. C. Lombroso's theory of genius as denigration may be grouped with the naturalistic theories. His argument is in essence the following. Great mental efforts and total absorption in one dominant thought often produce physiological disorders or atrophy of important vital functions. Now these disorders often lead to madness, therefore genius may be identified with madness. This proof, from the particular to the general, does not follow that of traditional logic. But with Lombroso, Buckner, Nordeau, and the like, we have come to the boundary between specious and vulgar error. They confuse scientific analysis with historical research. Such inquiries may have value for history, but they have none for aesthetic. Thus, too, A. Lang maintains that the doctrine of the origin of art as disinterested expression of the mimetic faculty is not confirmed in what we know of primitive art, which is rather decorative than expressive. But primitive art, which is a given fact to be interpreted, cannot ever become its own criterion of interpretation. The naturalistic misunderstanding has had a bad effect on linguistic researches, which have not been carried out on the lofty plane to which Humboldt and Steinthal had brought them. Max Müller is popular and exaggerated. He fails clearly to distinguish thought from logical thought, although in one place he remarks that the formation of names has a more intimate connection with wit than with judgment. He holds that the science of language is not historical, but natural, because language is not the invention of man, altogether ignoring the science of the spirit, philosophy, of which language is a part. For Max Müller, this natural sciences were the only sciences. The consciousness of the science of the spirit becomes ever more obscured, and we find the philologist W. D. Whitney combining Max Müller's miracles and maintaining the separability of thought and speech. With Hermann Paul, 1880, we have an awakening of Humboldt's spirit. Paul maintains that the origin of language is the speech of the individual man, and that a language has its origin every time it is spoken. Paul also showed the fallacies contained in the Volker psychology of Steinthal and Lazarus, demonstrating that there is no such thing as a collective soul, and that there is no language save that of the individual. W. Wundt, 1886, on the other hand, commits the error of connecting language with ethno-psychology and other non-existent sciences, and actually terms the glorious doctrine of Herder and of Humboldt, or theory of miracle, accusing them of mystical obscurity. 
Wundt confuses the question of the historical appearance of language with that of its internal nature and genesis. He looks upon the theory of evolution as having attained to its complete triumph in its application to organic nature in general, and especially to man. He has no suspicion whatever of the function of fancy, and of the true relation between thought and expression, between expression in the naturalistic and expression in the spiritual and linguistic sense. He looks upon speech as a specially developed form of psychophysical vital manifestations of expressive animal movements. Language is developed continuously from such facts, and thus is explained how, beyond the general concept of expressive movement, there is no specific quality which delimits language in a non-arbitrary manner. Thus the philosophy of Wundt reveals its weak side, showing itself incapable of understanding the spiritual nature of language and of art. In the ethic of the same author, aesthetic facts are presented as a mixture of logical and ethical elements, a special normative aesthetic science is denied, and aesthetic is merged in logic and ethic. The neocritical and neo-Kantian movement in thought was not able to maintain the concept of the spirit against the hedonistic, moralistic, and psychological views of aesthetic, in vogue from about the middle of last century. Neocriticism inherited from Kant his view as to the slight importance of the creative imagination, and appears indeed to have been ignorant of any form of knowledge other than the intellective. Kirchman, 1868, was one of the early adherents to the psychological aesthetic, defining the beautiful as the idealized image of pleasure, the ugly as that of pain. For him, the aesthetic fact is the idealized image of the real. Failing to apprehend the true nature of the aesthetic fact, Kirchman invented a new psychological category of ideal or apparent feelings, which he thought were attenuated images from those of real life. The aged Theodore Fisher describes aesthetic in his autocriticism as the union of mimetic and harmony, and the beautiful as the harmony of the universe, which is never realized in fact because it is infinite. When we think to grasp the beautiful, we experience that exquisite illusion which is the aesthetic fact. Robert Fisher, son of the foregoing, introduced the word Einfühlung to express the vitality which he believed that man inspired into things with the help of the aesthetic process. E. Seaback and M. Dees, the former writing in 1875, the latter in 1892, unite a certain amount of idealistic influence derived from Kant and Herbert with the merely empirical and psychological views that have of late been the fashion. Dees, for instance, would explain the artistic function as the ideal of feeling, placing it parallel to science, the ideal of thought, morality, the idea of will and religion, the ideal of the personality. But this ideal of feeling escapes definition, and we see that these writers have not had the courage of their ideas. They have not dared to push their thought to its logical conclusion. The merely psychological and associationist view finds in Theodore Lips its chief exponent. He criticizes and rejects a series of aesthetic theories, such as those of play, of pleasure, of art as recognition of real life, even if disagreeable, of emotionality, of syncretism, which attaches to art a number of other ends, in addition to those of play and pleasure. The theory of Lips does not differ very greatly from that of Geoffroy, for he assumes that artistic beauty is the sympathetic. Our ego, transplanted, objectified, and recognized in others, is the object of sympathy. We feel ourselves in others and others in us. Thus the aesthetic pleasure is entirely composed of sympathy. This extends even to the pleasure derived from architecture, geometrical forms, etc. Whenever we meet with a positive element of human personality, we experience this feeling of beatitude, which is the aesthetic emotion. But the value of the personality is an ethical value. The whole sphere of ethic is included in it. Therefore all artistic or aesthetic pleasure is the enjoyment of something that has ethical value, but this value is not an element of a compound, but the object of aesthetic intuition. Thus is aesthetic activity deprived of all autonomous existence and reduced to a mere retainer of ethic.
c Groose, 1895 shows some signs of recognizing aesthetic activity as a theoretic value feeling and intellect he says are the two poles of knowledge and he recognizes the aesthetic fact as internal imitation everything beautiful belongs to aestheticity but not every aesthetic fact is beautiful the beautiful is the representation of sensible pleasure and the ugly of sensible displeasure the sublime is a representation of something powerful in a simple form the comic is a representation of an inferiority which provokes in us the pleasurable feeling of superiority Groose very wisely makes mock of the supposed function of the ugly which hartmann and schlossler had inherited and developed from a long tradition lips and Groose agree in denying aesthetic value to the comic but lips although he gives an excellent analysis of the comic is nevertheless in the trammels of his moralistic thesis and ends by sketching out something resembling the doctrine of the overcoming of the ugly by means of which may be attained a higher aesthetic and sympathetic value labors such as those of lips have been of value since they have cleared away a number of errors that blocked the way and restrained speculation to the field of the internal consciousness similar is the merit of e verone's treatise eighteen eighty three on the double form of aesthetic in which he combats the academic view of the absolute beauty and shows that taine confuses art and science aesthetic and logic he acutely remarks that if the object of art were to reveal the essence of things the greatest artists would be those who best succeed in doing this and the greatest works would be all identical whereas we know that the very opposite is the case verone was a precursor of gaillot and we seek for scientific system in vain in his book verone looks upon art as two things the one decorative pleasing eye and ear the other expressive l'expression ému de la personnalité humaine he thought that a decorative art prevailed in antiquity expressive art in modern times we cannot here dwell upon the aesthetic theories of men of letters such as that of e zola developing his thesis of natural science and history mixed which is known as that of the human document or as the experimental theory or of ibsen and the moralization of the art problem as presented by him and by the scandinavian school perhaps no french writer has written more profoundly upon art than gustave flaubert his views are contained in his correspondence which has been published l tolstoy wrote his book on art while under the influence of verone and his hatred of the concept of the beautiful art he says communicates the feelings as the word communicates the thoughts but his way of understanding this may be judged from the comparison which he institutes between art and science art has for its mission to make assimilable and sensible what may not have been assimilated in the form of argument there is no science for science's sake no art for art's sake every human effort should be directed toward increasing morality and suppressing violence this amounts to saying that well nigh all the art that the world has hitherto seen is false Aeschylus, sophocles euripides aristophanes dante tasso milton shakespeare raphael michelangelo bach beethoven are all according to tolstoy false reputations made by the critics we must also class f nietzsche with the artists rather than with the philosophers we should do him an injustice as with j ruskin were we to express in intellectual terminology his aesthetic affirmations the criticism which they provoke would be too facile nowhere has nietzsche given a complete theory of art not even in his first book die gibert der tragödie oder griechentum und pessimismus what seems to be theory there is really the confession of the feelings and aspirations of the writer nietzsche was the last splendid representative of the romantic period he was therefore deeply preoccupied with the art problem and with the relation of art to natural science and to philosophy though he never succeeded in definitely fixing those relations 
from romanticism rather than from schopenhauer he gathered those elements of thought out of which he wove his conception of the two forms of art the apollonian all serene contemplation as expressed in the epic and in the sculpture the dionysiac all tumult and agitation as expressed in music and drama these doctrines are not rigorously proved and their power of resistance to criticism is therefore but slender but they serve to transport the mind to a more lofty spiritual level than any others of the second half of the nineteenth century End of section 25